the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. Thursday, December 16th, 2021. The novelist Walker Percy once put it that he hates to find tedious what gives such general satisfaction, but nonetheless, he finds things tedious. He was speaking of a book. I find it a truism about so much going on in our culture, a culture fueled by politics. Usually it's the other way around that culture determines politics. But once we are so very split apart, so fragmented, so very divided from our once consensus-building motto of e pluribus unum, out of many one, it allows for a culture to be taken over by politics or the making of politics more important than culture such that it informs politics does. It educates and then it takes over. Decades before Andrew Breitbart said politics is downstream from culture, Daniel Patrick Moynihan put it that the central, quote, the central conservative truth is that culture, not politics, determines the success of a society. And the central liberal truth is that politics can change a culture and save it from itself. You can see the worry. We operate on, we conservatives see the culture as all important. What we're fighting is what the left has used politics to change the culture. We are now struggling with this problem. What is it I find so tedious? A culture that celebrates people and ideas the same way Vaclav Havel wrote about the store owner who places the sign, Workers of the World Unite, in his front store window. Remember what Havel said. It's not that the store owner or greengrocer necessarily is deeply read and believing in the philosophy of Marx and Engels, but as he put it, is he trying to communicate to the world? Is he genuinely enthusiastic about the idea of unity among the workers of the world? Is his enthusiasm so great that he feels an irrepressible impulse to acquaint the public with his ideals? Has he really given more than a moment's thought to how such a unification might occur and what it would mean? Havel writes, I think it can safely be assumed that the overwhelming majority of shopkeepers never think about the slogans they put in their windows, nor do they use them to express their real opinions. That poster was delivered to our greengrocer from the Enterprise headquarters along with the onions and the carrots he sells. He put them all into the window simply because it has been done that way for years, because everyone does it, and because that is the way it just has to be. If he were to refuse, there could be trouble. He could be reproached for not having the proper decoration in his window. Someone might even accuse him of disloyalty. He does it because these things must be done if one is to get along in life. It is one of the thousands of details that guarantee him a relatively tranquil life, in harmony with society, as they say. Close quote. I might take a moment here to point out you just heard a 1978 disquisition on how America treated the BLM movement. 
But let me go back to Havel because he makes a critical point. He wrote, quote, of course, this does not mean that his action has no motive or significance at all or that the slogan communicates nothing to anyone. The slogan is really a sign. And as such, it contains a subliminal but very definite message. Verbally, it might be expressed this way. I, the greengrocer, live here, and I know what I must do. I behave in the manner expected of me. I can be depended upon, and I am beyond reproach. I am obedient, and therefore I have the right to be left in peace. This message, of course, has an addressee. It is directed above to the greengrocer's superior, and at the same time it is a shield that protects the greengrocer from potential informers. The slogan's real meaning, therefore, is rooted firmly in the greengrocer's existence. It reflects his vitalists, vitalist of interest, close quote. And so we go along with a lot of slogans, heroes, curricula, you name it. And sometimes in exquisite rituals of empty exactitude, as Hadley Arcus put it, think about how so many people you know have changed or tailored their language to the dictionary of fragility and equity and systemic racism and microaggressions and implicit biases and othering. Let's call it the new dispensation, the woke dictionary. It's really something far more insidious than any other dictionary, because this is a dictionary people, especially the young, actually use. I was thinking along these lines this morning when I saw CBS mark the passing, the death of an academic not known very much out of academia. Her name was Bell Hooks. If the name was familiar to you, it might be that you've seen references to her. Perhaps you heard me mention her because she is one of the two scholars the Smithsonian's Museum of African American History has on their website, their website titled Whiteness, Talking About Race. You may recall that that site got into some trouble last year when they posted a chart on how to know if someone was behaving or acting white, with examples being Christianity, doing homework, engaging in work before play, and other absurdities that have nothing to do with race any more than Reverend Al Sharpton, Reverend Jesse Jackson, or Reverend Martin Luther King had anything to do with being white because they attended a Christian church. Bell Hook's death was marked on CBS this morning, and it dawned on me how, import- how important it is to engage in this fiction of rituals, of empty exactitude, that people must say the right thing, that it includes celebrating the right people. Now, the interesting thing about Dr. Hooks is the way she spelled her name, all in lowercase, including the first letters of both her first and last name. And she did so, she said, so that people would focus on her ideas and not her name, her ideas and not her name. Ironically, the first thing anyone asks about seeing her name, about this look at me, look at me, do you have a staring problem, encouragement and denunciation, the first thing anyone thinks about her was the odd way she spelled their name, wanting to ask why. But to take her work seriously is the task, because she was not ashamed to speak her mind or say what informed her mind. Antonio Gramsci, the Italian communist, was one. Franz Fanon, the author, another. Both steeped in Marxist doctrine and ideology. Franz Fanon, in fact, is the philosophical North Star for every terrorist organization across the world since the 1960s. He writes that the anti-colonialist 
quote, can only triumph if we use all means to turn the scale, including, of course, that of violence, close quote. Jean-Paul Sartre summarized Fanon's thesis as, quote, killing Europeans is akin to killing two birds with one stone, close quote. So just to be clear, we have a scholar whose views are shaped by Marxists and terrorists supporting and informing and encouraging scholars. And the Smithsonian puts her up to instruct America on how whites are racist, and she is lauded in the obituaries as a great and important scholar. Is that culture or is that politics? Or is it politics informing a culture? I mean, if you have a scholar the Smithsonian deems instructive, and importantly so, who are you to disagree? And wouldn't that scholarship then be accepted and adopted into the general education in our schools as much as in our autodidacticism? Now, it's true those grotesque charts have been taken down from the Smithsonian website, but the rest of the instruction in neo-Marxist race consciousness is all still there, including the leading statement, quote, since white people in America hold most of the political, institutional, and economic power, they receive advantages that non-white groups do not, close quote. I'd like to just keep quoting the document a little bit. It is perhaps the most actually prejudiced and bigoted public document I've seen in recent memory, the idea that it comes from a government institution, all the more insulting. They write, quote, Whiteness and white racialized identity refer to the way that white people, their customs, culture, and beliefs operate as the standard by which all other groups are compared. This is white dominant culture. This white dominant culture also operates as a social mechanism that grants advantages to white people since they can navigate society both by feeling normal and being viewed as normal. Persons who identify as white rarely have to think about their racial identity because they live within a culture where whiteness has been normalized. Thinking about race is very different for non-white persons living in America. People of color must always consider their racial identity, whatever the situation, due to the systemic and interpersonal racism that still exists. Close quote. Do what you want with any of that, but if there's a movement to get us to think about people in terms of their skin color, it's the new left, the Marxists, and the Smithsonian. I just want to take that last line I quoted. If after all has been said and done, taking us from all men are created equal to Lincoln to King and integration back to a recrudescent resegregation and set of space, safe spaces for people of one race but not another, how is it to be proposed we do away with systemic racism that still exists? It seems to me the way to do that was to stop thinking about race or people in racial terms or their behavior as determined by their race in the first place. That's the path we were on. But that's not what the neo-Marxists want. That's not what Franz Fanon wanted. That's not what Bell Hooks wrote about. And that is not now the culture we live in. So what's left should frighten, just as justifications and apologetics on behalf of a violence in the name of anti-racism should frighten. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Looks like dissent is no longer the highest form of patriotism. Our buddies at Issues and Insights remind you how when Donald Trump was president, writing bogus attack pieces and talking endlessly about how he stole the 2016 election, we're all good for the country. Because, you know, dissent was then the highest form of 
patriotism. Now, reporting undisputed facts that happen to be unflattering to the current president poses a grave threat to the survival of this nation. At least that's what the journalists are now saying. As President Joe Biden's approval numbers continue to collapse and polls find that Trump is more popular than Biden these days, some of the truth-to-power crowd are using their platforms to attack their fellow writers for being too negative on Biden. The argument is that hurting Biden increases the chances that Trump, if he runs, could reclaim the White House in 2024, and that will be the end of democracy as we know it. Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank, for example, makes the claim that the media coverage of Biden has been more negative than it was in Trump's last year in office, and then delivers this message, quote, my colleagues in the media are serving as accessories to the murder of democracy, close quote. Yikes. Milbanks works for the paper, by the way, that adopted the motto, democracy dies in darkness. Milbanks' anti-journalist diatribe didn't raise a peep of protest from his colleagues. It did, however, warm hearts in the Biden administration. Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, promoted the column on Twitter with the caption, submitted for your consideration. Other White House officials also touted the piece. Dan Kennedy makes the same argument on the WGBH.org site, quote, large swaths of the media simply cannot or will not move beyond the both sides of journalism, equating the frustratingly hapless Democrats with a Republican Party that has embraced authoritarianism, authoritarianism and voter suppression, close quote. The New Republic's Jason Lincolns, who used to write about the media at the leftist Huffington Post, Headlines his article, quote, is criticizing Joe Biden a danger to democracy? While he makes sure to include a caveat about how blind fealty to heads of state is the hallmark of dictatorships, Lankins goes on to say that, quote, the GOP is the enemy of democracy, full stop, and that journalists must give up their pathological both sides tendencies. Jackie Calms at the L.A. Times said much the same on Bill Maher's show a few months back. Dozens of liberal groups joined in, sending a letter to their media friends telling them to, quote, swiftly address your role in promoting this widespread destructive pattern of reporting. Not only is it doing harm to our democracy, but it is also harming your reputation as journalists. Harming their reputation? Is that possible? In any case, let's see if we can understand the line of reasoning. The press spent four years debasing itself with wildly misreported anti-Trump stories that then forced some outlets to issue an endless number of embarrassing corrections. They did this expressly because they wanted to subvert the will of the people and drive Trump from office. That, to them, was called protecting democracy. Now, they say that should reporters honestly report the facts about the border crisis, the supply chain crisis, spiraling inflation, the Afghanistan problems, the endless COVID mandates, increased Chinese and Russian aggression, to say nothing of the fact that Biden is responsible for all of them, those reporters are posing a deadly threat to democracy because by doing so, they are driving down Biden's popularity. And we can't have Biden look bad because that could help Republicans win back the presidency. And if Donald Trump were to legitimately win the 2024 election, then that will be tantamount to a coup. Because, well, because 
because the orange man is just always bad. I'll tell you how we got here in part. Do you remember conversations throughout the country? We've had a lot of them on this show. Well-known local journalists even called in. Sua Sponte, listening to this show to chime in and weigh in on this point. But you all remember the conversations we've had about the journalists' creed that came out of the Missouri School of Journalism, the failure of journalists to do their job, journalists renouncing their professional obligations and duties, questioning the facts, questioning the government, questioning the opposition, digging deep, doing the gumshoe work that the Woodwards and Bernsteins were so famous for in their day, how how all that disappeared when it came to things like Russian collusion or, you know, anything really that Donald Trump did, that they just kind of surrendered. They became mouthpieces for one political position, one political party. You remember all those conversations? Well, the proof of all of that is where we are today with the press thinking their duty is now to defend Biden. They thought this in the closing days of the campaign for certain when they went after the New York Post and the Hunter Biden computer, uh, the Hunter Biden uh, laptop controversy. Do you remember what happened here? Do you remember what was said about it? It was said by former Obama officials who headed places like the NSC and the CIA, that this looked like had all the hallmarks of a Russian intelligence operation. Do you remember all that? By the way, people who never saw what was on Hunter Biden's laptop were saying that. So the New York Post decided to print some of what was actually on Hunter Biden's laptop before the election. And the line out of CNN and the former Obama intelligence officials was, This looks like Russian disinformation, a Russian intelligence operation. This is propaganda from Russia. And we all kind of, not you all and not me, but as a country, too many were just willing to accept this, willing to believe it, kind of like the grocer's supposed to put workers of the world unite in his window. We all just went along saying, oh, okay, okay. And then these press outlets did one more thing. They implored Twitter to shut down the New York Post's account so that people couldn't share the story. And if you did share the story, you would be suspended. So it wasn't enough to taint the story. They had to then censor another newspaper. That's how we got here. They long ago stood up to say, we're really just here for the Democratic Party to protect them and defend them. Truth and fact has nothing to do with this profession. You know what? Maybe it has to do with the profession of talk radio now, folks. If so, we're happy to be here. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602 Mike's in Carefree. Hello, Mike. Hi, Seth. How are you doing? I'm today? fine. Merry Christmas to you, sir. And to you. Thank you. I about fell off my chair when I was watching it. It was either CNN or uh, C-SPAN when uh, Joe Biden was um, joyfully stating that the, the newer legislation would help with voting and so forth. And yeah. He said, 
Oh, this is the new. Oh. The, yeah, they're trying to resurrect that that HR one stuff, right? Yeah, right. And he said it doesn't matter who votes. What matters is who counts the votes. And he I, said it with a big smile. I, I couldn't face. believe it either, Mike. You and I oh, seized on that too. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's like it's, it's it's bad enough that he's that, that that they're using Marxist Bolshevism. Now he's even plagiarizing Stalin's. The thing about what you know, I, I, the thing that 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 is so odd to me is how how removed from reality and the national conversation do you have to be to think that it's okay to use that quote? That's the first thing that's, I that's thought. I, you know, th- that's the first thing I thought. Fitness, Go ahead. What? If you're concerned about his mental fitness, it's like who quotes Stalin in one of the most infamous quote, infamous quotes. In history, and with a smile on his face, it's bad enough that he has some some communist in his in his group writing the 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 memo of the speech for him. But he's he's so far around the bend that he doesn't remember that. He's old enough to remember that. Uh, you know, I I just don't I just don't understand why why yeah. I mean, I I don't understand why he thinks it's okay to talk that way. But then there was another part of this that I thought was interesting, Mike, and maybe it's not the biggest part. Uh, to you, I, I I thought it was it was it was telling though. He said this at a holiday party for the Democratic National Committee. Now I you know every everyone has their holiday parties and that's all well and good, but is that the kind of thing that you do at your holiday parties? Do you stand up and make speeches about? I mean I don't know if you run a Republican organization. I suppose you might say something political, but it just seemed to me an odd place to inject it. I, I just thought it was a very odd thing with the cameras rolling. Uh, yeah, just I, just I another another part of the Democratic Party that takes takes no gives no quarter to anything other than politics. All politics, all the time. It's a permanent revolution, if I can use other communist language from that era. I agree. How, um, Mike, how, how, how did you take, speaking of this, how did you take the latest? Kamala Harris was doing an interview and she was asked if she and Joe Biden had plans or had discussed plans for the reelection effort for running again. And she said, we've not had that conversation. Didn't you find that a little odd, too? It's, it's, it's not a defense it's, uh, of Joe is, Biden, is it? It's not, it's not something you would say if you were trying to defend Joe Biden. Sort of reminds me of when you read the historical accounts of Roosevelt and Truman. Truman had no idea what was going on. He was completely uh, separated from all of all the yes, right, important right in, in the government. And yeah, particularly I, I think, on the war effort, right, right, right. Exactly. He had no idea about the nuclear yeah, program. Yeah, yeah. He had no idea about. He had that famous know, line. What was it? I feel like all the moons and stars have fallen on me, or something like that. When he took, yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly, and and that's why he said, "Vice presidential job isn't worth a cup of spit." Yeah, yeah. I well, I gotta, I you know, I I I don't know whether to believe her or not, whether they've had those conversations or not. And it's not as if truth really matters to her anyway. It's not as if they put a lot of premium on that in the first place. I just thought it was a weird thing to say in public to a reporter when the task here is. What is the task of the vice president? It's to support the president, isn't it? I mean, it just yeah, didn't seem yeah. like, uh, I, you know, I, I just thought it was an odd construction. I, I would have I would have treated my boss better. 
If my boss were being questioned about whether he was fit for office or fit to serve or fit to have his contract renewed, and someone asked me about it and I was his number two in public, I'd jump to that defense. I wouldn't say it's never been discussed. It makes one worry about the moorings of the Democratic Party when you have Hillary Clinton reading her acceptance yes. speech for the presidency yes. Yes. and crying. A vice president who doesn't know whether she's going to run, even though I'm sure that she is as delusional as they all are. Oh, I'm sure she and, thinks she's the solution and the Biden team is the problem. I'm sure she thinks that. I'm sure she does. Yeah. It's like these people are so far off the American norm, and as you say, it is the culture. Yeah. And it's the culture that saved it. And it's in the in the words of the founders, you know what I mean? You have to have a moral society for, for our There has to be a premium on a few things. And, uh, you know, we started off with putting premiums on truth and the consent of the governed. I don't know what the Democrats put a premium on these days. Power at any cost, I suppose. Hey, Mike, thank you. Appreciate it. Be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602-508-0960. Another Mike calling in from Maricopa. Hi, Mike. Yes, good afternoon, Seth. How are you? Uh, thank, I am just excellent. A Merry Christmas to you. And to you, sir. And, yes, sir. Now, in a way, the, the information I have to give is 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 not quite tied in, but in a way it does. It, it get, it's a message of hope. Uh, today, Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash, I'll spell his name, A-L-W-Y-N, the last name is C-A-S-H-E. He was from the 3rd Infantry Division in Iraq. I think it was back in, 19, or excuse me, 2005. Uh, they were having a night mission. They were in Bradley fighting vehicles, track vehicles, and going out of patrol. There were supposed to be three vehicles going. Yes, uh, one of them had mechanical problems, so they uh, two of them went. Uh-huh. And partway down the road, the vehicle that uh, Alan, uh, Alwyn Cash was riding in struck an IED. It ruptured the fuel tank and set the whole vehicle on fire. He helped the driver out that was badly burned, and then he went around back on the loading ramp to unload the people. His clothing had become drenched in fuel and caught on fire while he was still continuing to pull people out of the burning vehicle. Mm. When they finally found him laying on the ground, the only thing he had on was his boots, his body armor, and his helmet. Mm. They evacuated him. He insisted that all his people be taken before he went. He ended up at Brooks Army Medical Center in San Antonio. He died 16 days later. Mm. He was awarded the Silver Star at the time. That's the nation's second highest honor. Mm -hmm. And there's been a big campaign to get him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Mm. And today... Uh, President Biden uh, awarded him the Congressional Medal of Honor. Wow. And tying in with your statements in your monologue, you know, it seems like when all seems lost, 
we can rest assured, America, that they're still making them. Yeah, they are still making them. We are amazed, Mike. Every uh, thank you for bringing this uh, to the attention of of this public and and this host. We are we are continually surprised, aren't we, by how good we are? Why are we? Why are we surprised by how good a people we are? Because what we read and hear and see from almost every output and outlet that there is, is that we're what? A sick country, um, an angry country, an imperialist country, a, uh, a, a discourteous country, a systemically racist country. There's an investment in making us feel bad about ourselves all the time, and not just bad, but the worst there is. Uh, our presidents, when they're Republicans, are tyrants, fascists, racists, and white supremacists. Um, and that's not, by the way, just the Republican president named Trump. It was said of other Republican presidents. Um, in fact, even Republican candidates who didn't become presidents. So, so sometimes, you know, you know, we we have to be forgiven for for the notion that you just spoke to, Mike, which is the eminently true one. We are a good people. We are a good people who live in a good country. Sometimes the country is um, governed by – sometimes the, the country is governed by people less good than the countrymen they govern, and that's unfortunate. And sometimes a country has a media and it has a messaging uh, system that is less good than the people that it supposedly reaches. Do you remember after 9-11 – all these young and old guys, actually. I remember old guys, guys, you know, well into their 60s and 70s. And by old, I mean just too old to go into the service, wanting to volunteer and do something militarily. Do you remember all these guys and all these great stories of tremendous heroism that some people's books touched on? Oliver North and others were promoting some of their works and some of these great heroic acts. It's it's yes. it's as if it's as if. When Tom Brokaw wrote The Greatest Generation, we all kind of bought in that we would never do better than that. And and there was certainly an ethos to that generation that may not suffuse the ethos of the 20-somethings of this generation. And there are certainly the, um, the excuses and uh, the wilting flowers and the fragile snowflakes in our generation – that seem to be a lot louder and a lot more protected and desirous of protection than there were in years past. But you know what? There's also the heroes. There's also the great ones. And as long as this country still has a remnant of people who believe in signing up for this military or signing up to serve this country in other ways, as long as it has one person willing to do that, I'm still going to say – it's a damn good country, and you're right to point it out. And God bless, uh, God bless uh, the people receiving this honor. And you know what? It's a good thing to say about Joe Biden for conveying it too. We can do that too, can't we? Absolutely. God bless you, Seth. Thank you for your time. You bet, Mike. Thank you for yours. I'll just say, whenever I think about these heroes, these American heroes that we celebrate. You know, we should keep in mind, I, there's no real way to know the ratio here, but 
anyone in our own lives who we know who gets celebrated or gets an award or an honor, you know, we can think of probably 15 or 20 people equally, if not in some cases more deserving of those or other honors that just don't get recognized. For everyone who gets one of these tremendously difficult, um, tremendously difficult to achieve uh, pieces of recognition like a Medal of Honor, uh, there are there are ten. I don't know. Are there a hundred people out there who are probably equally deserving as well? Whose heroism and feats of action may not have ever been known, or if they were known, were never disclosed, or if they were disclosed, just didn't have the champions that it takes to get those honors uh, conveyed. I worked. Um, I worked with a handful of people. Should I, do I need a break, Bill, or am I good? Yeah, let me let me let me come back on this after this break, real quick. Um, I, it was about an effort I engaged in to help get someone a Medal of Honor, Rick Rascorla, and he was granted it. My only point is, it takes a lot of work, even when it is just so damn obvious. You look up Rick Rascorla, and you think it's so damn obvious, um, and and easy. It takes a lot of work. That's why I say, you know, for everyone that gets it, there may be many, many more of equal deserving. And who's talking about that kind of stuff? Who's talking about those Americans? Uh, How much news will this make? Will this make the news tomorrow morning at CBS? I wonder. I wonder. The lives that they decide to talk about, especially in death, tells you the kinds of of um, the kinds of living that they esteem. So today they spent a good amount of time on Bell Hooks passing, a Marxist professor. Let's see what they say about these guys getting the Medal of Honor tomorrow, if they say anything at all. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 602508 Okay, well, I made the point about Rick Rascorla. It takes a lot of work to get someone a Congressional Medal of Honor or any kind of Medal of Honor, even when it's so obvious. And uh, it takes a lot of not the kind of lobbying you hear that, you know, David Schweikert and I talk about, not that kind of K Street lobbying, not usually. It takes a kind of lo- a lot of lobbying at a grassroots level. But, yes, it's important we recognize what, um, what the uh, – what the Roman poet uh, Virgil recognized that uh, here too, here too, uh, things mortal touch the soul, and there are tears for passing things. Joe Biden, I just can't let this go. I did a bunch of this yesterday. I just, I just want you to know who who we're listening to when it comes to dealing with. I don't care what you call it, Omicron, Delta, COVID. Producer Bill, who's back, welcome back, Bill, glad to have you back, made a very good point. Uh, first play the audio, and then I'll give the point. This is Joe Biden on Tuesday. We played it yesterday. You need to hear it again. Play it from And so everybody talks about freedom and not to have a, to have a shot or have a test. Well, guess what? And so how about patriotism? How about making sure that you're vaccinated so you do not spread the disease to anybody else? That what is so that? far removed from science that there is... Not a CDC or any other study that actually says that. And in fact, every study put out that the CDC promotes says the exact opposite. That is so far removed from 
every bit of scientific knowledge that exists that it's amazing to me that he can't even get that right. But this is the level we're dealing with. Now, the deputy press secretary was doing the press today, uh, not Jen Psaki, but the deputy press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre. I actually like her a lot better. She's much more easy to take than Jen Psaki. By the way, if Donald Trump was subject to being made fun of because of the color of his hair, is, does anyone, has anyone ever seen a spectrum that has the color of Jen Psaki's hair? Is, is it rude to point it out? I don't mean it to be. I just, just the two rules are amazing to me here. But let me go back to this. So, so, so Corinne Jean-Pierre took the question from Peter Ducey today saying, why would Joe Biden say this if we're supposed to follow the science? Her answer was kind of instructive. She said, well, I don't know the quote. I'd have to see it in context. You know why that's instructive? Not even she was willing to defend it. Even she knows the science doesn't say that. You are led by a bunch of political hacks posing as smart experts we're supposed to follow and lead who are a tremendously refreshing break from the last four years of disaster, particularly culminating with covid You are now in the hands of a leader who promised to end the coronavirus by not doing what Trump did and has given us 24,000 more deaths than happened on Trump's watch with a year more learning and vaccines. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.